Hey, this is Vikram Panchal from the Lead Your Life podcast. I'm so thrilled you could be joining me today. So buckle up your seatbelt and get ready for some fresh, actionable content coming your way right now. Today, we're going to be discussing about what it's like to become love. Now, I believe you're the ideal person to do this interview with. And the reason I'm saying that is because of your past background. Um, you were not always a Christian. You know, you had an interesting start uh, with Bill Haley and the Comet. I just want us to know a little bit more about your background, what it was like, you know, playing for Bill Haley and the Comets. It's interesting because I uh, grew up in, in New York City and I was very uh, poor. And somehow um, I got into music just by the sheer interest of getting together as boys and trying to uh, mimic singers yeah and uh, it turned out that that our harmony was was um, very good the lead singer was uh, fantastic he had a one of those golden voices that everybody stopped when he sang and that catapulted us right into uh show business uh, in a short time man was passing by the subway in New York City while we were practicing in the subway entrance. And uh, the man said, you boys need a manager. We were 12 years old. Wow. Uh, we, manager? What's a manager? <clears throat> so he talked to our parents. Uh, then uh, as soon as he got permission, he sh took us up to the Bronx, to the other borough in New York City, so we could get tailor-made suits. And then uh, he bought, bought a brand new station wagon with our name on it, Donnie in the Twilight Sand. This is wild because we're poor kids. You know, my mother raising six boys by herself. Anyway, one thing led to another and from one step to another. And all of a sudden, I'm the bass player for Bill here in the Comets. And, and that was uh, a humongous uh, step in as much as uh, there were millions of kids wishing that they could be up there with you know, level of the Comets, etc. So here I am, the bass player of the Comets. And performing with with them and it was it was kind of odd because i where we were performing uh there was of course the yelling and the screaming and the applauding and whistling as we performed you know uh the lights flashing on us sometimes the light was so bright you couldn't see people all you you only could see was the lights and then so uh, how, how old were you at that time because uh, you said you started at 12 years yeah, old by this time i was uh, 19 20 and so we are uh, performing and then they would run off after the performance and uh, Bill and Rudy would go and get drunk. Rudy was a saxophone player and, and those guys would just drink all night long and go to, you know, get knocked out from the drinking. And I didn't see them again until maybe three or four o'clock in the afternoon. It's time to get together and practice and get ready for the next show. So during this time, there was this, this uh, quiet moment in the hotel rooms where I thought, Something's missing, and I, I, I didn't know what it was. I, I couldn't figure out, because I thought, if you can get, have more girls and more this and more that, they take care of whatever nagging void was inside. But no matter what I did, there was still that emptiness inside. Until, of course, the crowds were there and the whistling and, the, you know, etc. So, yeah. so it, it was a, a rather um, unusual experience for me, because in one sense of the word, uh, it was exciting, exhilarating. Uh, when you're up on stage and you have people screaming at you and all that, and you know you had the pick of any girl that you want to in the audience because uh, you're 
There's that, this. that would have been like every every guy's dream, you know, like back in those days. Keep going on. Like, tell us what happened afterwards. Yeah, so there was this 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 uh, this euphoria that took place every every time you got up to perform, and you, ex- I got to expect it. I, as soon as I, got, I started performing, I expected people to start screaming, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, the announcer would say, "Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on stage, Bill Haley in the comments," and all of a sudden, you know, everybody starts screaming and all that, and we come and start playing a rock around the clock, and then uh, the night would come, and uh, everybody that was normal disappeared. And there was nothing, just this quietness at night. And so it was that kind of experience. And uh, I, I figured that I might as well just accept that this is the way life is, and, and that's it. So what kind of a person were you back then? Because this is obviously before you became a Christian. And I don't even know how that even happened. Like, what made you even start going to church? Because you said you had this, you know, this void. Um, while you were on stage, everything was perfect. But the moment the crowds left... You felt this emptiness, but what was Louis Torres like back in those days? If someone met you, what impression would they leave with? Well, unfortunately, uh, Louis Torres was a very, uh, how can I say, lustful individual. Um, by that time, I had four women. I was a very uh, hot-headed person. If you looked at me the wrong way, I would say, you don't like what you're looking at, do something about it. In other words, you know, let's, mm. go, let's go to blows. I was carrying a gun around me, with me. I was into a lot of, um, whether it be alcohol or, or uh, drugs, etc. We had a motorcycle gang that, that followed us uh, in New York, New Jersey. And one day they wanted us to, after the performances, which we finished at 4 o'clock in the morning, decided that they wanted to have a, a party uh, in one of the... Uh, Jersey City uh, apartment buildings. It was about a five-story building. Yeah. And they had rented all the top floors because they were growing marijuana on the rooftop. So in order to to, to uh, guard the access to the roof, they rented all the four apartments. Yeah. So they were the only ones who went to the roof, nobody else. Yeah. So they, they, they um, offered this drug party. So, of course, we went to the drug party and... All sorts of drugs were available, and um, I don't know what I took. I always participated, but I, I can't tell you what I, what I took. Mm. All I know is this, that after everybody was intoxicated, high, inebriated, whatever term you want to use, but uh, people's minds were altered, okay? Right. Somebody raised the question, who's God? And I remember getting deeply uh, involved in this in this discussion of trying to figure out who God was. And what's amazing about this is that I don't remember a lot of things that I did, but that experience, even though I was somehow had influ- been influenced by some whatever I took, I remember even the conversation to today. I remember the, the, the discussion. I remember the, the erroneous conclusions we came to. And then I left at four in the morning and so I was driving back to my apartment. This terrifying thought struck me. If there is a God, I'm in serious trouble. So here I was in this environment with all of this, uh, this excitement and all of that. But I was disillusioned from this perspective. I thought that uh, in performing with the comments that, that their lifestyle would be cleaner than 
where I was before, because before I was with a different group, and that group was into the mafia, into all sorts of uh, stuff. Mm. And I thought the comics was a cleaner atmosphere, um, more moral people and all that, only to discover that that was not the case at all. Uh, one of the boys, for example, had uh, a $200 a day drug habit. Mm. And that today would be $1,500 a day. So where are these uh, people now? Like, I mean, the people you were playing with in the past, do you have any idea of their whereabouts? Rudy or? died. Johnny Lane died, the drummer. Bill died. Uh, Bill Miller died. Uh, there's only one fella that's alive. That's the fella who I thought would be dead, who had a $200 a day drug habit. Uh, he's still alive. So, and all the other groups that I paid, played with, they're all dead. So, mm. um, everybody's gone, basically, just uh, myself and that other fellow who was the lead guitar player. He stopped using the drugs not too far after I uh, left the band. It's funny because um, you could have very easily continued down the path you were already heading. And who knows where that would have led you. But on the other hand, you know, today we're having this conversation because... Uh, the Louis Torres today is very different to the person you were describing at the age of 20. You know, you said you were hot-headed, you were into drugs, you know, you were taking alcohol, you had a pick of women. You know, most young people would have died to have that kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. you were having. When I look at you now, you're a very, very different person. Um, in fact, the Louis Torres that I see, you know, you're all, you're like a magnet. You know, it's like wherever you are, if if people know you're coming to town or if you're coming to their city... It's like people start calling and say, hey, Louis Torres is coming. It's like there's this excitement about people mm -hmm. who've met you in the past. So what was it that makes you so different now to compare to who you were in the past? Because, you know, we can be Christian, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your life has changed in a very, very positive way. People change incrementally, but you've had a dramatic change. With, with me, it was a dramatic change. Uh, what happened was that I... I returned, uh, we were going to do a world tour and compete against the Beatles. At that time, the Beatles had become popular. Yeah. And we were going to go and do a competition again with them. We took a break. So during that break, I went home. And when I arrived at home, one of my brothers was on his knees praying, which was very weird and odd to me because uh, I had never seen my brother. And, when he, and he was using my name in his prayer, and that spooked me because I was more in tune with Satanism and witchcraft and everything else in show business, which is very prevalent, than I was with, with the things of God. So I thought he was casting a spell on me. So I went to my mother. I said, what's wrong with him? I'll leave him alone. He's become religious, she said. So then he came to talk to me about a Jesus and... I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want him to talk to me about religion. So then my oldest brother showed up two days later. My oldest brother was into gambling. He was a terrorist and terrorism and all that. So he shows up and he says, uh, I would like to invite you to my baptism. What in the world's a baptism? <laughs> uh, so then he said he was going to, he, he had decided to uh, commit his life to to the Lord. So out of respect, I go to this baptism. And the only thing I knew about baptism a little, as a little kid 
was uh, the priests, you know, putting sprinkling water on little babies' heads. Yeah. That's what I understood about baptism, being Catholic. Yeah. So I'm trying to think about how this is going to become reality uh, with my brother being a full-grown man and being sprinkled on his head. So when I went there, the minister then took my brother and sister-in-law up to the front of the church, and I could hear them walking in water. So I thought, okay, there's water up in front of the church. That's odd. So then... He says some words and puts my sister-in-law into the water. She comes up, she's crying. And I thought, silly women, always crying about nothing. <laughs> and, and then my brother takes a place and he gets put in the water. He comes up crying and I'm troubled because I had never, ever seen my brother Gene cry. Hmm. I never saw him cry before. Even though we grew up in tough neighborhoods and there were t tough situations, um, Never saw him cry. One time, three fellows jumped him, uh, the other gang, uh, and the, the president of the gang and his two bodyguards called my brother, and two fellows were holding his arms while the president was punching away my brother's face. My brother got loose from the fellow on the right hand, and one blow, he knocked out the president. Mm. And when he, that fellow got knocked out, the two fellows ran. My brother did not have one tear. And then the president was so embarrassed that he sent word that he was going to kill my brother. So my brother then went and got a knife and went looking for that president, found him up on top of the roof, and uh, challenged the fellow to uh, dare him to, who's going to come out alive? Well, the fellow got so scared he threw his gun down and, su and surrendered. Mm. And so this is the, the fellow that's getting baptized, <laughs> and he's crying up in front. And he's crying in front of 200 plus people. And I can't understand that. I, I, I did not uh, understand what was going on. And all of a sudden, the thought of two years before came to my mind about God. And I thought, could they have found God? Is that why they're acting so different? And that began a real, real battle inside of me because I could see that they were happy but I knew that the happiness did not come from jumping up and down and screaming at the women and all that. And I couldn't figure out what makes these fellows happy. How can they be happy reading that black book? Yeah. It just didn't make any sense. But I knew that there was something different about these boys. These are not the boys I grew up with. These are different. Somehow deep inside I thought, it'd be great to be like that. But then the very thought scared me because I thought if I'm like that, I got to give up all the stuff that I have. So I left the church troubled. And then I remembered that the, the tour was coming up. We were going to go to France. And they had mentioned how we would be able to find all the women we wanted there and all the booze and all the stuff that would take place. Uh, so all of these thoughts of grandeur and glory were before me. Well, at the same time, I'm having this challenge about uh, this simple, selfless life that my brothers had chosen. And so then what happened was uh, I, I, I wanted to escape. I wanted to get out of New York ASAP because I thought something was trying to grab a hold of me. Mm. And I didn't want to, it to grab a hold of me because I had equated forsaking all that that I had strived to, to get. To get. So I decided inside my mind, I thought, if God is there, he'd be upset with me if, I, if, if he knows I'm trying to escape. So 
I decided to keep quiet until it was time to leave. And then if it was time to leave, well, God will understand. I have to go back to work. Uh, it's amazing how we, we rationalize. When we want to hold on to something, right? we begin to, to rationalize. So I was trying to rationalize this way. Yeah. Well, I got a telephone call that the, it was postponed. They postponed the tour. And I thought, oh, no, I'm stuck here. So I had to then, as we say in music business, I had to face the music. So... I decided, okay, I'm going to show to this God, prove to him that I have to have this exciting life. So I decided that I would find a dance I could go to. So there was a dance uh, being held at, at uh, a hotel downtown Brooklyn. So what kind of dance? Like, are you uh, talking about ballroom dancing here, or is it something uh, else? Yeah, ballroom dancing. Just, just, uh, oh, there, so would, it's, there yeah. would be nine bands playing from 9 o'clock at night to 4 o'clock in the morning, nonstop music. And you can dance as much as you wanted to because it would be nonstop music. So it's more civilized compared to, say, going to a club today, you know. This, yeah, no, this, just... was, this was at a hotel. It was pretty pricey to get in there. <laughs> uh, and uh, people had to go dressed up with, with their fancy dresses and fellas had to go with their suits on. Or... So I went with the full intention of, of, of showing him, if he's looking, that... Uh, I'm happy. Okay, so I went and I started dancing. Now, I was a professional dancer, so usually I could outdance a lot of people. Yeah. So uh, I danced until midnight, from 9 to midnight. So I go up to the balcony, I'm looking down the dance floor, and there are all of these uh, fellas and girls, uh, you know, gyrating and, and jumping up and down, etc. In those days, the monkeys were the, um, pardon me, the dancers were the monkey, the chicken, the dog, the waddle. And waddle was to kind of waddle like a duck, you know? While they're dancing. Uh, you know, when you're dancing, chicken was to act like a chicken with your arms. Yeah, I've, no. I, I've seen that in movies when I was growing yeah. up. Yeah. But yeah, I was too small then. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I'm looking down. And I'm looking, before it used to be, oh, look at that girl. Boy, she could really wiggle, et cetera, you know. Uh, look at that girl. She could really dance. And so I was up there spying over the dance floor, and all of a sudden it was not what I anticipated seeing. A sense of, of I became horrified to think that there were all of these bright-minded people uh, obviously, with enough money to pay to go to a to a ball like to a that. Bar, ballroom dance like that, well dressed. Here were all these people thinking that happiness came from acting like an animal, and I was uh, I couldn't believe it that people would be deceived to think that this was happiness. And to think that I was one of the first to be in there, thinking that this is what brings happiness. Mm. And all of a sudden, this conviction, overwhelming conviction came over me. I, I don't need this stuff. And I looked up to the, to the ceiling, I remember saying, God, if you're there, do for me what you did for my brothers. And I have left the balcony. It was like a moment where I made my decision. Because mm. I had really, I didn't have any education. I dropped out of school when I was in the 10th grade. So I really didn't have 
any skill other than skills in working in a machine shop, which is usually what all the immigrants did when they came to to America. Yeah. Work in these factories. Yeah. And so my thought to begin with was if I become a Christian, I'll have to drop down to become a nothing, Mm. an immigrant. It's kind of like this fear of leaving everything behind that you knew. And that was, the thought was humiliating to me. That I would have to drop from being a somebody to being a nothing. And then, that if I became a Christian, I wouldn't have any fun. I, I got to the place where I thought that religion was for the ugly and the old, as I said before. And therefore, if you're ugly or old, you might as well go to church because you couldn't do anything outside. So those those thoughts were, were holding me back. But when I saw all these people in that dance floor acting like chickens or dogs or whatever, I thought, that's it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not living this way anymore. So I said, God, if you're there, do for me what you did for my brothers. I left. And when I got home, a horrible, horrible sense of lostness came over me. I had never before felt lost. But all of a sudden, I felt like if I came before the judgment bar of God, I would be condemned. I was lost. I had no hope. And the more I thought about it, the worse I felt. It's like my whole life came before me, all my, all the wretched things I had done, all the things I was involved in. Uh, it, was, it was agonizing. And, and so I began to try to talk to God. And as I said, I had never been taught to pray. So hmm. I just stood there talking to God like I'm talking right now. But I was actually in earnest saying, God, help me. God, forgive me. Oh, God, take this stuff away from me. Hmm. You know, just just making this plead for God to, to deliver me. And the more I said that, the worse I felt. I felt more miserable, more lost. Uh, and so I sank down to my knees, and I sank, as I sank down to my knees, I felt something wet and warm on my cheeks, and I didn't know what it was. So I looked up to the ceiling to see if something was dropping from the ceiling, because in New York City that happens. <laughs> but there was nothing dropping from the ceiling. And all of a sudden I realized, it's my it's tears. And I thought, I hadn't cried for years. It was like I was dead. I had no feeling. I'd become mm. uh, numbed. And here, tears were flowing. And I realized then I was crying. And it felt so good to cry. I hadn't cried for years. And as I cried, I remember a piece of, uh, of a feeling of peace came over me. And when this peace came over me, it was as if though what I had been asking became a reality. Mm. I stood up and I realized that I was free. I'd sensed that I was no longer a druggie, a drinker, a smoker, uh, that everything was gone. And when that happened, I looked up and thanked God and realized that in reality, he was real. And the, the deliverance that he did for me proved to me that he was real. And when I understood that God was real, it brought a sense of joy into me. And I thought, ah, the opposite is true. I fear that if he was real, I would be just zapped out of existence. Mm. But the contrary was true. And by the way, from that instant to today, 
So it's 51 years. I have never had a desire for another drink, for drugs, for cigarettes, etc. The Mm. deliverance was permanent. I mean, I'm just, I'm still overwhelmed by hearing your testimony. It's it's really, really moving. Because I... Hearing your story makes me reflect on my experience in coming to Jesus as well. But, you know, I, you know, I guess like that, what you shared right now takes you to the point of where you had that conversion. You know, you were broken up by God. Mm. You know, God really had to humble you from within and, you know, expose you for, I guess, for who you had been. Mm-hmm. And he began the process of healing. And now you're saying, you know, 51 years later, God did not take away those things you were, you thought he would. In fact, he's blessed your life in so many ways. You know, you're traveling around the world sharing about the good news about Jesus. Wherever you go, you leave such a positive impact. It's incredible because everyone who's had contact with you sees you as their kind of spiritual father. Um, you've got this amazing uh, you know, aura about you that you leave behind. How is it that God has changed your life so dramatically from your conversion to actually experiencing becoming more and more like Jesus, how does that happen? Well, what happened was that I realized that that the miracle he performed was a guarantee of his realness. But I did not know much about him other than what he did for me. So I decided that I would share witness with others the only thing I knew about him, and that was that he delivered me. He's a God of power. He can deliver the heart, the mind. He can change you from inside. And as I shared, it just strengthened my conviction about him. Then I realized that I needed to become more acquainted with with his character and what he was like. And I found the Bible to be a wonderful guide to uh, understand what God is like. In the, and so I began to read uh, like John, the book of John, the book of Matthew, the Gospels, about Jesus. And the more that I read, the more that I studied, the more acquainted I became with him. Right after I, I, I became converted, I went into the army, and uh, I became uh, pretty critical mm-hmm. against other people. And these soldiers that, that, these soldiers that claimed to be uh, Christian, but they, they would go out to the nightclubs and things like that. I became critical against them. And when I became critical against them, I was reading in the Bible, and I read a passage that said uh, about two servants, one that had, that had been uh, forgiven, and, and then he turned around and didn't forgive the other servant. And so... The uh, other servants told on him to the master that had forgiven him. And uh, the text that really hit me was, should you not have had compassion on your fellow servants, even as I have had compassion on you? And all of a sudden it hit me. You know, for all the miserable things I have done, and God has forgiven me, and here I'm critical against these people for doing Nothing in comparison to what I had done. Mm. Oh, God, forgive me, I said. Mm. Change me and make me more compassionate, more forgiving toward people. So the more I studied the Bible, the more I read the Bible, the more I saw uh, the likeness of God and what I could become like. So it led 
me to become, for example, I was engaged with my girlfriend who uh, I met after I was converted and uh, she came to visit me at, uh, when I was in basic training in the army. Uh, but prior to her coming to visit me, I, again, I was reading the Bible and I came across 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and I began to read it. And it says something like, if I speak with the languages of men and of angels and have not charity, I become like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Well, I knew what a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal was because in show business, that's what we had. The drums had the, the brass, you know. Right. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Okay? So I read more on that. And all of a sudden, I realized I don't know what love is. I mean, the girl that I, I was engaged to was an attractive girl. She was a talented girl. She was a smart girl. Most importantly, she was very committed to the Lord. And all of those qualities uh, I admired in her. And then I realized that I did not know what love was. Love was, I thought love was this passion that you had for women, sex drive. Then as I read the chapter, ah, oh, it was a rude awakening. I don't know what love is. So when she came to visit me, I broke off the engagement. And she wept. She said, "Why? Why? what did I do? I said, it's not about you. I'm sorry that I have you connected to me when I don't know what love is. It's not fair to you. It's selfish. It's self-centered. And I can't do that to you. She said, you're not even crying. I said, because if I cry, I'll make it more difficult for me to do what's right. So I, I, I'm sorry that I have brought you into my life when I don't even understand what love is. Forgive me. So she left home. She was broken up. I was broken up also. It wasn't that I wanted to lose her. It's that I re realized that I had to be honest. And so I, I told her, and before that, I was not honest. Before, I had four women. And I each would tell them I loved them and I was going to marry them, you know. All. <laughs> but uh, I had one in different places so that they wouldn't know each other. <laughs> so when I became a Christian then, I felt terrible about that, that I was playing with women's hearts. I was playing with other yeah. people's hearts. So I actually went and visited one at a time and let them know that I was this wretch that was playing the game with them, and I couldn't continue that life anymore. See? Mm. But I was dealing with them from the perspective that I knew that what I was doing with them uh, was wrong, as far as Christ was concerned. But now it's getting deeper. Now it's not just about sex. Now it's getting deeper about, I don't really, really know what love really is. Mm. And here I have this young, wonderful lady leading around to to marry me when I don't even know what love is. So I broke it up. And it was not until later, as I kept on reading the Bible, that I realized that love is a gift from God, that the more you know God, the more capacity he has to enable you to love. And when that came to my awakening, I thought, oh, praise God. So I'm not hopeless. <laughs> yeah. I can receive more love. And so then I told my, my wife, I said, if I give you three weeks, will you be ready? So in October of this year, we'll be married 50 years. 
That's fantastic. And it's been a wonderful journey. And I have to confess that I love her more and more because the more time I spend with God, the more he gives me the ability to comprehend, first of all, and to experience, second of all, what he wants me to be like. So that love then is the love that enables me to love other people to care for other people. You know, one of my favorite memories of you is a few years back, you were visiting Melbourne. I just started in ministry and uh, I was getting getting you to meet one of my friends I'd been studying the Bible with. And on the tram ride over here in Melbourne, I remember you just start talking randomly to strangers on the tram. And I was thinking, Pastor Torres, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> it's just crazy. But you were just making friends with people everywhere you went. And that just left a lasting impression on me because after we got off the tram, and I remember you saying, you know, Vikram, you should get that guy's number. You know, what were you doing? You know, while you were talking to him, you felt like that person could be someone I could make friends with. And I was like, Pastor Torres, that's a stranger. You know, why would you even do that? But that's just the kind of person you are. Wherever you go, you strike up a friendship and you change those people's lives forever. But now that you've shared, I realize that that's exactly what Jesus did. And because of how God has loved you with an unconditional love, you're now simply learning how to reflect that love to others. Well, I really appreciate this time and I wish you all the best. I look forward to seeing you very soon in the near future, but thank you so much for today. Thank you, Vikram. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the latest podcast on Lead Your Life. Louis Torres shot to international superstardom in the 1950s when Bill Haley and the Comets was born. In case you didn't know, Bill Haley is considered by many the father of rock and roll, releasing a string of hits that have sold multi-millions over the years. But amazingly enough, today we heard the story of a man whose life was dramatically transformed when he came in contact with the higher power, Jesus Christ. Today, Louis Torres travels all around the world sharing hope and love with whoever he meets. You gotta meet him. If you enjoyed today's podcast on Becoming Love, stay tuned for next month's interview where I'll be diving into some practical ways on how you can grow your ability to lead with love in your home and work. Until next time.